Turn your Bibles to the book of Job one final time. Not one, fi- like, like hopefully you'll read Job on your own at some point, right? Just one final time here currently, right? But as you turn to the book of Job, those of you that, uh, that look at your scripture on like an iPad or, a, or you know, on your electronic devices, <laughs> you are at a disadvantage. We're going to be kind of jotting our way through all of Job. And as we kind of uh, do um, uh, a, a revisitation of Job, meaning that we're going to kind of fly by and look at all the things in Job, hopefully in just kind of one large um, summary, we'll be flipping a lot. And so um, I, I encourage you, if you have your paper Bibles, that's, man, that is the way to go sometimes just because you can kind of flip over page to page and see what's coming up next and what comes before. But if you turn to the book of Job... <clears throat> We have been uh, um, preaching through Job for, um, for many a Sunday. And as we have, because it's a long book, we have taken such a long time that the possibility of us losing some of the grandeur, some of the particulars that should hit us alongside with many of the other valuable lessons that are given to us in Job. Um, that is the reason why I thought it might be helpful to us to kind of do one flyby um, to see a lot. And to see all of it at once. If I asked you what the book of Job was about, and especially if you've been here um, as we've been uh, studying the book of Job together, you might, you might say it's about suffering. But not just suffering. It's about suffering and God's sovereignty. And so I would like to paint a picture of Job and the story of Job from those particular scenes. From heaven's courts. Um, from under the sun and uh, um, from the whirlwind. In other words, if you think about it, it's almost like we're looking at it from God's perspective. This is what the Lord is doing. This is his intention. This is what happened to Job. This is what's going on with him. And in the final analysis, God shows up not to answer Job's questions specifically and absolutely and say, hey, this is why suffering happens but to let him know that suffering does happen and God is sovereign over it. He has brought this into your life. But God is also the one that will stop it. And he is the only one that can tame all the wildness, all the sinfulness, all the brokenness that is this earthly existence. And so we will be revisiting Job today. Let me just uh, pray for us. And we'll just kind of jump right in because we have a long ways to go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time, especially as we look back in our time in the study of Job. Especially as we think about how um, suffering is such a universal reality. Lord, there's not a one of us in this room that either hasn't experienced significant trial and suffering or will soon one day experience significant trial or suffering we know that this is because of the fall because of sin we know that it's also because of satan and what he desires to do in terms of crushing our hope and our faith we know that there's a lot of reasons why these things take place and we know that there are not always good and simple and clear and hope-filled answers but we know that we can look to our god who is good who is sovereign who promises that all these things will eventually cease. And so, Lord, as we revisit the story of Job from your perspective, Lord, would you instruct us this morning and give us uh, hearts that would be open to considering our own lives, our own frailties, and remembering the God who is in charge, in control, and is only powerful and can do all things and does all things for the good of those that love him that are called according to his purposes. So we praise you for your grace to us and ask that you will bless this wet Sunday uh, that we might worship you and enjoy this Lord's Day and fellowship together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So the, the larger three kind of movements, if you think about it, are three scenes. One is from the scene from heaven's courts. And in that, I, I desire to, to kind of cast God's 
perspective on what is happening in the life of Job in the first two chapters. And remember, the first two chapters, there's a calamity hits, but it's also where Job is introduced. And then from there, to see what happens in terms of the various dialogues, right? Job says something, his friends say something, and three cycles, if you recall, of dialogues of trying to discuss why such suffering takes place. And then Elihu, this young upstart, comes in at the end and has words of wisdom from God. And then from the whirlwind, chapters 38 through 41, there's really God showing up and speaking directly to his servant, Job. So let's jump in. We begin with heaven's courts in chapters 1 and 2. And if you remember the, the story of Job, we're introduced immediately to this individual. We meet Job in verses 1 through 5. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So we're immediately in the opening verse given Job's reputation. Blameless, upright, feared God, turned away from evil. He's a godly man. He's a good man. And it's affirmed by the author of the book of Job. It will later be affirmed by God himself. And it'll be reaffirmed in terms of, uh, of who he is and what he is in terms of his love and dependence upon our God towards the end. Uh, a couple verses later in chapter 1 is uh, the verses about his prosperity. And we don't, we don't need to rehash all that. He was rich, right? So much so that he had a bunch of sheep, camels, oxen, donkeys, servants. It says at the end of verse 3, this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. That's pretty intense, right? Wait, do I have slides for that? I think I do. I apologize. Yeah. His reputation was verse 1. Prosperity, verses 2 to 3. And then his devotion. I want to take a look at his devotion for a second there, right? Uh, according to Job chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, it says this. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, probably on each of the siblings' birthdays. And they would send and invite their three sisters and eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, and this is the part to pick up, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. And now, you, you need to understand this well. Job is not in some way like atoning for their sins. What, what it's speaking to is that he has, he has this, this uh, devotional commitment to offering up right, uh, burnt offerings unto the Lord. And yes, his children may have sinned, and as a result of that, he will offer that up regularly when he knows that they've been having a good time, when they've been having a party, etc. In case they have in their hearts cursed God in some way, he's offering up what we might think of as the equivalent of a prayer service. He would go and pray, each one by name, offering to the Lord a sacrifice, worshiping the Lord, and making sure that, Lord, if, if they need to be turned from their sin, would you turn them from their sin? Is a godly man with a reputation that seems legitimate and with a devotional heart that is spelled out in the way that he lives. So that's Job. We meet him, right? We meet Job as this godly man who is also the greatest of all the people in the East, right? And then we consider, we begin the consideration of Job. And I'm using that term intentionally because that's exactly what takes place. In talking about considering Job, right? There's two very similar um, statements in chapter 1, verses 8 through 12, and then in chapter 2, uh, verses 3 to 6. And the reason why I'm saying they're similar is they both begin with God saying something about Job to Satan. And both end with Satan challenging, right, this notion that Job is faithful. And both resulting in something tragic happening to Job. In the chapter 1 section, right, um, it is that, uh, it is uh, what will precede um, all the terrible things that will be taking place, right? Job in a singular day will lose everything. Um, he'll lose everything that he has owned. He'll lose his family. All of that will happen. Chapter 2 
what will take place after this particular throne room meeting is that Satan will curse Job's flesh and his health will fail him. So we're talking about some intense stuff. But what I want you to consider is, one, that there is this unseen consideration of Job. This is what God says to Satan in verse, one, verse 8 of chapter 1. And the Lord says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? So the parallel or the similar statement in chapter 2, after Job has lost all of his earthly treasure, including his children, right? In chapter 2, verse 3, There is God speaking to Satan again, and the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. See, what what I find interesting is there is this unseen consideration. There is this unknown challenge that Satan will present right? God is saying, have you considered him? And Satan is saying, dude, why does Job even fear you? Verse 9 of chapter 1, Satan answers the Lord and says, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You bless the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. See, that's the challenge. Then later, even as he's cursed, right, as Satan has cursed Job to suffer all loss, then the second time around when God says, have you considered Job? Satan says, skin for skin, this is chapter 2, verse 4, all that a man has he will give for his own life. But stretch out your hand to touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. The reason I want to just put emphasis on that is because from heaven's perspective, there is a consideration of Job that is taking place between God and Satan. Where God is speaking, right, specifically about how much he has an affection for this individual because of his godliness. And Satan is convinced or is trying to convince that he is only godly because you bless him. If you take away his stuff, he will curse you. Didn't happen. So God says, again, let's consider Job. And Satan says, well, if you take away his, his, his life, right, his, his vitality, man, people will give anything for their help. And that's why the afflictions of Job take place. So we've been saying we meet Job, we're considering Job from heaven's perspective, from heaven's courts, and then the affliction of Job. And we won't run through all of that. But I I just want to give you the quick highlight of it. Materially blitzed. I mean, like in a single day, in chapter 1, verses 13 to 19, there's these phrases. Now there was a day when his uh, sons and daughters were eating and drinking, and a messenger said, this happened. And then while he was yet speaking, another messenger comes and says, this has happened. And while that guy was still speaking, a messenger comes and says, this has happened, right? And finally, the, another and final messenger comes and says, while he, that other guy was speaking, right? Um, your sons and daughters, they have all perished. I mean, it all happens in a singular day. It is outrageous. It is outrageous to the point where it's, it's, it's understandable to me that Job's friends are thinking like, well, clearly it's the hand of God, Right? And it's always the hand of God, whether that is stretched out over the course of decades or that happens all in a single week or a day. It is always the hand of God. The affliction that Job suffers is the hand of God. God has sent this to Job. That's what we mean by God being sovereign. It's a hard word to hear because our temptation is to try to defend God. Oh, no, God, you know. He allows such things, but he, he didn't send such things. No, the Lord is the one that initiated the consideration of Job. He's the one that, that basically um, provoked Satan to challenge Job's faithfulness, right? God's the one that initiates and sends and allows. Yes, he does allow, but he does this all. He is sovereign. Could he have stopped any of it? Absolutely. Could he have stopped all of it? Absolutely. He chooses not to. 
So Job is materially blitzed. And then chapter 2, he's physically broken. Remember, Satan caused him to break out and loathe them sores from the sole of his foot, from the bottom of your foot, right? All the way to the top of your head. So he's just scraping himself while he sits in the ashes. His body is broken. And then I'll add one that is a little bit surprising, right? Because you don't realize it until you continue to read in the book of Job. He is relationally abandoned. I mean, we know in chapter 2, verse 9, that his wife comes to him. And after everything that has happened, she says, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. She has lost hope. And she leaves the scene. Well, similarly, by the time we get to Job 19, verses 13 and 14, Job says this. He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. And so Job in chapter 19, and during the dialogues, he explains that all my relationships, all those that are related, they've all left me. He is alone. And towards the end, if we didn't understand how significant that was, part of the blessing of Job's restoration, his earthly restoration in chapter 42, verse 11, is all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before they came, ate bread with him, showed him sympathy and comfort for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. See, when we consider like the opening chapters of Job, there's more than just Job had a tough day or a tough few days there there is tragedy that is taking place and and that tragedy comes from the heavenly throne room but we need to recognize one thing that god right his hand his sovereign hand is in our suffering satan he similarly tends to have a hand in our suffering but god and satan have absolutely different but overlapping intentions for the suffering that they bring satan's intention is obvious his intention is to destroy your faith to remove from you any joyful worship to hear you curse the living god that that's exactly his prediction of job you take all this away he purpose in suffering well, God's intention in suffering is to magnify his worth in the heart of his people. We'll say more about that because that is a hard lesson for us to unpack. Satan is working towards our destruction. God is working so that all things, including tough, bad things, are for our ultimate good. And before we leave heaven's courts, right, in chapter 1 and 2, the opening chapters of Job, we have to give some appreciation to Job's initial faithfulness, right? This is how Job, oh, can you even read that? I can't read that, right? After, after the loss of all of his material treasure, in Job chapter 1, verses 20 through 22, this is what scripture says. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. That, that's that first passage that is listed there. And then after Satan comes back a second time, okay, he didn't curse you, but you take his life. You do something with his physical well-being. You make him feel his mortality and that he's going to die and then he will turn on you. But after all those things and even the abandonment of his wife in Job chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, I just read verse 10. He says to his wife, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Whatever else we may say about Job, if all of Job was just chapters 1 and 2, we would think highly of Job, period. We would appreciate him as a man of amazing faith, right? In the face of the loss of literally everything, we saw that list, right? 
We, 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 we saw how he had lost everything materially, physically, relationally. There was very little left. And in the midst of all of that loss, he keeps looking to God and says that the Lord has, has taken away, because the Lord gives, he takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. We receive good from the Lord. Shall we not receive evil from the Lord? And from the get-go, one, one facet of Job is that he sees God as the exalted one, that he has a right, that Job, not Job, God has a right to do whatever he pleases, and he trusts that whatever God pleases to do, good or difficult in our lives, is ultimately meant for something better. Jerry Bridges in Trusting God. Oh, I think I have this quote for you, don't I? Yeah, Jerry, can you even read that? <laughs> Jerry Bridges in Trusting God. If you can't read that, I'm reading it to you, so it'll be fine. It says, God does not willingly bring affliction or grief to us. He does not delight in causing us to experience pain or heartache. He always has a purpose for the grief he brings or allows to come into our lives. Most often, we do not know what that purpose is. But it is enough to know that his infinite wisdom and perfect love have determined that, that, that the particular sorrow is best for us. Listen, J. Bridges says, God never wastes pain. He always uses it right, to accomplish his purposes. And his purpose is for his glory and our good. Therefore, we can trust him when our hearts are aching or our bodies are racked with pain. I appreciate the wisdom that Jerry Bridges brings and the appropriateness of that as we think about the person of Job. Because again, if we ended here, we would say, Job, what a man of tremendous faith and faithfulness. We are so thankful for him. And from heaven's courts, established. Everything God said, proven, right? Done. But can I remind you of a couple things? We read, right, what is happening from heaven's courts. We know the consideration of Job and the challenge to Job that God presents and that Satan responds to. We know that this is all intentional and has purpose and comes from some, you know, divine throne room as God and Satan are discussing things concerning this godly man. What does Job know? He knows zero. What do you know? You and I, we know zero. So that when tragedy hits us suddenly, it is absolutely sudden. We, we don't overhear like angels going, dude, some bad stuff coming down the pipe for Nam, right? We don't hear that. Job didn't hear like rumors like Job is like considered the greatest man in the East. I think the Lord might, you know, use that for some purposes and it might not be that comfortable for him. He doesn't know anything that is taking place. He is blitz. He is blindsided. It's an unseen consideration of him. It's an unknown challenge that is presented to him. And he responds beautifully, faithfully, majestically. It just, just, he is um, he is a man of tremendous faith. But that's from heaven's perspective. That's God's sovereignty in bringing pain into the life of a godly man. And the initial reaction of that godly man demonstrates why, right, the scriptures introduced us to him as it did. Because he's the real deal. He, he actually is a godly man who loves the Lord and considers God his friend and, and is faithful to him in every circumstance. So that's from heaven's court. And then we transition into this long section that is often overlooked in the book of Job, chapters 3, all the way through 37. And this is what I would call under the sun. And the reason why I'm saying under the sun, I'm borrowing that phrase from the book of Ecclesiastes, because that's what uh, the, the preacher, the, the, the author of Ecclesiastes, I think it's Solomon, right? How he speaks of life here on this terrestrial plane. In other words, everything under the sun. What he means by that is everything that happens without recognizing or, or thinking or considering fully all the things of the Lord, the things that are in the heavens. We're talking about life here on earth. 
And that's exactly what's taking place. So without any knowledge, right, I, I remind you that whether it's Job's friends or Job, right, none of them have any knowledge about what is going on in heaven's throne room. They do not have heaven's perspective. They are just encountering this under the sun. And so they enter into a cycle, right, three cycles of speeches. And we, we, we know this. And... Um, We've already walked through this, and we'll move through this uh, fairly quickly. But cycle one, right, um, kind of sets the foundation of the other two cycles. All right, so we'll, we'll look at cycle one a little bit more closely. But I, I think as we look at the first cycle of, uh, of dialogue between Job and his three friends, recognize this, that first of all, it's initiated by Job's despair. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, this is what it says. After this, Job opened his mouth. Okay, so the friends had gathered. They had sat down. There was a ministry of silence and presence, and they just stood by him. When his wife had gone, his brothers and sisters chose not to show up, right? All of his other companions and friends did not show. At least these three friends, they showed up, and they sat with him. And as they sat with him and mourned with him, Job finally spoke. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. Verse 2, and Job said, let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. Verse 11 of chapter 3, why did I not die at birth, come out of the womb and just expire? Chapter 3, verse 20, why is life given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter and so. A couple things we want to say. One, in the midst of his despair, as it's dawning on him that this may be, and this probably is, the rest of his existence, he feels the weight of despair and he wishes he was never born. He further, on the flip side, says, I wish I could just die. But what I appreciate about Job is that's still a category that's in God's sovereignty. He doesn't go, you know what? I'm going to try to kill myself. You know, it's so bad. It is still him as a creature, still in submission to his heavenly father. And as he thinks about God and his sovereignty, without knowing that God is the one that initiates all of this, he thinks to himself, like, man, it would have been better if I just didn't exist to suffer this much. That's how deep the suffering is. That's how painful it is. And it's just his expression, speaking out loud. And what does the mouth speak? Only that which overflows from the heart. This is how he feels. He's in despair. And that's what triggers three cycles of dialogue. And so that first one is going to be significant because it is, it is the foundation. It is, it is where the launching pad. It is the first things that they want to say. And everything else is kind of an extrapolation of that. Eliphaz goes first. And Eliphaz has a very simple formula. Chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Remember who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? See, verse 7 of chapter 4, Eliphaz makes this simple statement. Can you think of someone that was innocent that was killed by the Lord? Or was there ever a time that someone that's upright is cut off by him? Verse 8 of that same, the next verse in that same passage. As I have seen, those who plow inequity and sow trouble reap the same. See, the foundation, he's already laying his foundation of his, his, his theology of retribution. He is simply saying, hey, Job, even as you despair for life, can I just remind you, like, is there ever innocent people that are done dirty, right? Is there ever upright and righteous people that God cuts off? All I'm saying is those that plow inequity, they sow trouble in the same way. It's proportional, you get what you gave. I'm just saying that, Job. And then and, and as he continues his speech, I'll give you just one more kind of snippet. In chapter 5, verse 17, in the same speech, he says, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles, and seven, no evil shall touch you. Can I say that for the most part, he's not speaking falsely. Does a man reap what he sows? Yeah, it's a principle in Proverbs, right? 
It's a principle given to us even in the New Testament repeatedly. Is there, is there uh, you know, you, you reap, you get, right, what you give. That is a constant and true thing when we talk about righteousness. But that is not, that, though generally and proverbially true, that doesn't account for every circumstance. And that's come I'm saying his formula is so simplistic that he's going to redefine Job and his character based on what he sees happening in his life. Job's response, I don't think I put his response up in the, in the thing, but his response at the end of that first cycle, right, is this, Job 6, verse 10. Being crushed or cut off by God, answering that, he says, um, it would be a comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. He is saying that if I was crushed, if I was cut off, it might comfort me. If, I, if God killed me, it might be okay because, because I haven't denied his words. Verse 24 of chapter 6, teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. See, his question is, is I don't understand because if you can point it out, I don't see it. I don't see what I've done to deserve, right, the suffering that has come upon me. His question is simply this. Why is suffering not proportional to righteousness? Right? Because Eliphaz's simple formula is this. You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. And Job is saying, but I haven't despised God's word, right? I still look to the Holy One. So help me to understand, what could I have done to deserve all of this? See, if we were in heaven's courts, they aren't. We would know he hasn't done anything to deserve any of this, right? There's no, there's no direct line between this tragedy, this pain, and Job's existence. Well, Bildad enters the picture, give you a, a little faster version of this. And he comes in and he just wants to clarify God's justice. But he does it in a way that is so harsh and cruel. Listen to what he says in Job 8, 3 to 4. He says, does God pervert justice? Our answer is no. Or does the Almighty pervert the right? No. Verse 4, if your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Look, that could be true. We don't know everything about Job's kids, right? But what a cruel and horrifying thing to say to someone who has recently lost all of his children. If they're sinners, right? God delivers them to their transgression. See, you, you see the, 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 uh, the continuing, overly simplistic kind of, this is what God does. He is just. He doesn't pervert justice. So this is what your kids deserved kind of mentality that they throw at Job. Job's response to him was that, no, if you think about it, unrighteousness seems to thrive in the world sometimes. Job 9, 24, he says, the earth is given into the hands of the wicked. He covers the faces of the judges. If it is not he, then who? Job literally says, listen, if you think about some of the wicked stuff that goes on, Right? Even judges who should speak for righteousness, they could be bribed. Right? He covers their faces so that they don't know better and they cast wrong judgment. If it's not God, who, does, who is it? In Job chapter 10, verses 7, although you know that I am not guilty, speaking to the Lord, and there is none to deliver out of your hand, he's saying, Lord, what is the guilt that you are punishing me for? So see, Job buys in to retributive justice at this point, as we all should to some degree, because that's not bad theology, that's true. And for the most part, if we're sinning, we should expect that the Lord's discipline will come upon us. And if we're walking in the things of the Lord, the Lord will bless our journey. That's for the most part. But there needs to be space to recognize that God is patient and so on the wicked, he doesn't necessarily immediately grant justice. And on the righteous, he brings things that could still hurt. Zophar, right, he is the one that is maybe the shortest and the most direct. He just says, Job, you, you deserve worse. 
Job 11, verse 5, but oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom for he is manifold in understanding. Amen and amen. Then he says this, know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Now listen, there is a theological truth in that. We can honestly say that God gives us, even in our discipline, less than we deserve. Amen? But at the same time, to say that, when a guy has lost his family, his fortune, his life, his health, to say, man, you deserve worse than this, I'm just saying. Can you imagine you're in the hospital with a terminal illness, and I come visit you, and I go, hey, man, I haven't seen you in church. How are you doing? And you're like, oh, man, this is so hard. I'm having such a hard, I wish I, I wish I was never born. And I look at you, and I go, hey, you know, this is less than you deserve. See you later, right? Hope you make it back to church. Right? That would be so weird. But this is Zophar's approach, right? And Job's response to him, verse, chapter 13, verse 4, as for you, and I think he's talking about Zophar and all the others, you whitewash with lies, worthless physicians are you all. Verse 12 of that chapter says, your maxims are proverbs of ashes, your defenses are defenses of clay. Let me have silence and I will speak and let come on me what may. Job begins to recognize his earthly counselors are not going to be of any help. Right? So that's the foundation of the cycle. Cycle two, it's the whole thing kind of repeated. They don't add a lot more. It's just as if the, the arguments are slightly intensified. And as a result of that, in the midst of that, Job, already despondent for everything that's going on, he has this, uh, he has this uh, particularly good word in his response to, in the middle of the second cycle. This is Job's hope in the midst of the darkness. Right, He says in chapter 19, verse 25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet my flesh, in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. See, Job is... He's not just fighting his despondent, his despair. He's having to fight and defend himself um, um, with his own friends. And as he does that, he seems to sense that there is something better than this life. Can you imagine if this was all we had, right? If your life exactly constituted was as good as it gets, that's all you get, and then you expire. I don't know how unbelievers... Atheists, people who think that there is no life after death. I don't know how they approach this life. I imagine they approach this life uh, in, in, with the sense that I hope that I am lucky enough to get everything good. Because if, unfortunately, if I'm born with a debilitating disease, right? If, unfortunately, I get into an accident and my life might start to drain away. If unfortunately the people I love have betrayed me or, or different things have gone wrong, if your life has gone wrong, right, what do you do? You make lemonade? Right? Isn't that the, the expression, right? Life gives you lemons, like a terminal disease, or the death of your children. You make lemonade. There is not enough sweetness in lemonade, in that kind of lemonade, to make up for the tragedies that human beings can suffer. And I think that's what Job and his faith begins to recognize. This can't be all there is. There's, I need a redeemer. I need a mediator. I need someone to rescue me. I can't rescue myself. And as I recognize my need for another, I am convinced that though I would die, he says, after my skin has been thus destroyed, in my flesh I must see God. I will behold him and not another. I will see him with my own eyes. It's a tremendous statement of faith given to Job in the midst of darkness. And then the third cycle, right? The third cycle proves, if nothing else, that the arguments are fizzling. They fizzle out. And the reason why I say that is because it's the shortest of all the three cycles of the friends. They become very long-winded, trying to describe what has happened in the second time. It's still long, but not quite as long, and they're kind of repeating some things that they have already said. By the time you get to the third cycle, right, 
There's a wild accusation from Elihu. He says this in chapter 2, verses 5, all right? Is not your evil abundant? Talking to Job. There's no end to your inequities. For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the, na- and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink. You have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land. Favored man lived on it. You have sent widows away empty and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you and sudden terror overwhelms you. He is saying, Job, let's just, just be true. Let me just go straight up because I'm running out of things to say. So let me just concentrate my argument. You are filled with sin. That's why this happened. Bildad jumps in in that same, uh, in that same cycle. And, um, oh, wait, did I have a thing for that? Maybe. Yeah. Wild accusations. Bildad jumps in and just talks about divine justice. Literally, he just talks about divine justice. Only six verses. I'll read them all to you. Bildad the Shuite answered and said, Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in his high heaven. Is there, any number to his, uh, is there any number to his armies upon whom does his light not arise? How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born a woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm? Build that out. I mean, literally, all he has to say is kind of this, God is divine and is just. Zophar? He has nothing to say in the third cycle. He literally does not speak at all. And so we've discussed this already, but the friends have a number of missteps. They, they speak true theological statements. But true theology, statements that are true theologically and out of context, can be falsely misapplied. They're convinced that God is righteous. We would say amen to that. Job would say amen to that. That God never misses on punishing sin. We would say amen. Job would say amen. And so therefore, Job, you must be in tragically terrible sin. And we would know that's not true. Job knows that's not true. And most importantly, God knows that's not true. So under the sun, right? That's what we've been talking about, under the sun. As the human beings try to figure out exactly what's going on and how to understand suffering and blessing, They do not realize, though Job is beginning to realize, that suffering and blessing are not distributed in exact proportion to sin and righteousness. Do you understand that? That you you might be trying to do what is right. You might at school be trying to do things the right way because God is watching and everyone else is using, what is that, chat, GI, the the AI thing, and having their, their essays written for them. I'll be honest, man, if I was in school, I'd be tempted, right? Hey, shoot me a thing on, you know, on, uh, um, on, on German, you know, uh, political parties uh, pre-World War II. I had to write an essay on that, and I almost failed that class, right? Because I, I didn't know their names. Anyway, under the sun, suffering and blessing, it's not so simplistically understood. And the point is God is still in control, and he still reigns. In Job chapter 12, verse 13 to 16, Job says, with God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He recognizes that God is still absolute in his knowledge and his wisdom, as well as his power, right? False assumptions and accusations offer no help. That's one thing we can learn from these cycles. Even if some of those statements are true, much of what they have to say about God is actually true and good, but they misapply it. They use assumptions and accusations towards their friend, their godly friend, and as a result, they come across as the enemy and not as friends, right? And Job recognizes through it all that there is still wisdom and that God is still wise, even if man cannot see it. Let me say this before we leave under the sun. Suffering, right? That's, that's what happens from heaven's perspective upon Job. And then the dialogue, the consideration, the human consideration of what is going to take place, right? 
has an effect on Job. Remember at the end of uh, both statements of Job, at the end of chapter one, at the end of chapter two, Job, it says of Job, he did not sin with what he speaks. He did not sin with his, with his lips. He did not complain or blame God. Well, he begins to. I think that's interesting. In our human discussions, it is more likely for us to wander into bad application of theology and to sinning against each other because, right, arguments tend to kind of escalate and we start to overstate things or we say things too strongly. Eliphaz is an example of that. He started off gracious, like, hey, can I give you, you know, my perspective? And then he ended up saying, dude, you have been cheating people. You have been stealing from the poor. You are the most wicked man with no evidence. He's just convinced this is what it must be. How do you escalate that? Well, if you've ever been in an argument, you know that all of arguments, because of our sinful pride, our lack of wisdom, our lack of graciousness, it usually escalates to the point where we say stuff that is absolutely false. That's what's happening, and that's what's beginning to happen with Job. Job has three primary complaints. I won't read you the passages, all right? But... He complains, one, that God is not hearing me, right? In Job 13, 24, why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? It's like, I'm calling to you. Why aren't you coming? Secondly, his complaint is that God is punishing me unfairly. Job 9, 17, for he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my words without cause. He's recognizing that God is in charge of all of this. So why is God sending this to me? It's not fair. Complaint number three, God allows the wicked to pr prosper. It's kind of like 2B, right? Um, if 2A is God is, is uh, uh, punishing me unfairly, he's not punishing the wicked who fairly deserve it. Job 21, 7, why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? The most resplendent, the most, you know, famous, the most powerful tend to be wicked human beings. People that do not acknowledge their God or give thanks to Jesus Christ, right? This is Job's complaint, and these complaints are building. But on the flip side, the other thing that's coming from his dialogues is a progression of hope in the midst of his suffering. Right? In the beginning, he was like, dude, I wish I had never been born. But somewhere along the way, he begins to recognize things like that his Redeemer lives. In Job 14, 13, he says, oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath be passed, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal should come. There is building in him a hope that there's got to be more to this life. Now, let me ask you this, right? Let me ask you this interesting thought. Would Job have been thinking about a redeemer and about living a life after his own death if all of this suffering hadn't come into his life? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, he's a godly man. Maybe Elihu just shows up later and just tells Job, hey, Job, just so you know, when you die, it's not the end. God will reward us, right, for our trust in him, and we'll live eternally with him. Maybe Elihu shows up and tells him that, and Job's like, oh, yeah, that's cool. I believe that now. That's mine. I hold that, and I'll live by that. Perhaps. But I have an inclination that if it was me, that that would be like, okay, that's cool. So when we die, we get to go to heaven? Isn't that how we talk about the gospel, right? So that's awesome. So because I've tr trusted in Christ, right, for the forgiveness of my sins, then I will one day be in paradise with the Lord. That's great. We believe that. But it doesn't necessarily ring like I need to clutch onto this, like all of my life depends upon it. Until you have cancer. Then it's all of a sudden like, what will happen to me? And there's sadness for what will happen here. But you're convinced of what is going to happen there. See, without suffering, it is difficult for us 
to grow in the wisdom that says that this is not all there is. If all you receive, because right, because I could hear Satan's argument to this degree. I'm not agreeing with Satan. I'm just saying that I could agree with him to this degree. That if there's only blessing, if you keep putting a hedge around each other, if that's all we do, we pr protect, we provide, we give security, and we try to make it as pain-free of an existence as possible, what might result from that is not healthy and strong Christianity, but a weak and passive one. Oh man, the weather is so cold. I literally said that today, right? And I was thinking about some of my friends who live in Chicago, right? And then when they come visit, they'll say stuff like, dude, this is cold to you? Like, what, what is, like, they think, like, what is wrong with you? And it's because they've been, and I'm like, fine, judge me, but I don't care. Like, I don't like when it goes below 60. Very uncomfortable here, right? That's Southern California. But if, you, if you're from anywhere else in the country, especially in the northern section of our country, you realize, like, dude, it goes down below zero. I don't want to be anywhere where it's below zero. That's ridiculous, right? But it's in the difficulty that we, that we more understand with wisdom the, the blessing of the things that are to come. Last thing under the sun is the new voice, and that's Elihu. And I'll just say this. Elihu comes with, he, he rebukes Job for, um, for complaining and saying things about God in a way that is not, is not helpful. I, I made the argument that Job is a prophet, that he speaks on behalf of God, and he speaks rightly. And I draw from the fact that, that, that you know, the friends don't reply to, to Elihu. Job doesn't reply to Elihu. And when God comes and he, he chastises Job's friends, right, he doesn't include Elihu. He literally says, Eliphaz, you and your two friends have spoken wrongly of me. He doesn't include Elihu in that. So I think Elihu is speaking rightly, and he's coming with warning, and he's helping him. But he says something that I think is entirely helpful, right? He clarifies, he clarifies God's purpose in suffering. And this is Job 33, verses 14 through 19. He says, for God speaks in a way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision at night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber in their beds, then he opens the ears of men and he terrifies them with warnings. God comes and he brings warnings. That he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. God brings warnings to the heart of a man to keep him, to turn him aside from his wicked deeds, to cover up or to get away from his pride. Verse 18, he keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Verse 19, man is, not, is, is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continuous strife in his bones. Elihu's point is this, God uses suffering differently in the life of the righteous and in the life of the wicked. For the wicked, it is a judgment. But for the righteous, God brings suffering and it has a purpose to curb him from wickedness. To expose his pride, right? To, to help him to, to turn away from the pit and to keep his life from perishing by the sword. It's so interesting. One of the reasons why um, Elihu is often grouped in by some scholars with uh, the other friends is because he says statements like this. God does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. He does not withhold his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne, he sets them forever and they are exalted. It sounds like the retributive principle, right? He, he, you know, he afflicts the, the wicked, right? He cares for the righteous. He keeps his eye on them. But then the very next verse, he says this, but if they, talking about the righteous, are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions. The righteous seem to have transgressions, that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from an inequity. He goes on to basically say that there's a possibility of the righteous ones having sin and God speaking to them in their affliction, or as C.S. Lewis was saying, he shouts to us in our pain, right? Let's get to our last one. So we looked at it from heaven's courts, that, that perspective. 
from the dialogue of human beings under the sun, and then finally from the whirlwind. And this is the most fresh to us. So I, I think we're okay to move fairly quickly to that. But towards the end of the book of Job, God himself shows up, all right? From the whirlwind. And the Lord basically establishes that he is Lord over all of creation. He's Lord over the earth, right? Were you there when the morning song sang together, all the sons of God shouted for joy when I laid the foundations of the earth? That was, you know, um, 38, 4 through 7. He's Lord of, over the sea. He prescribed its limits. He put up its, 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 uh, its doors and its barriers so it doesn't go further than it, than it is, right? He's Lord over the dawn. He's the one that commands the morning to come up. He's Lord over the deep. He walks the deeps. He knows the deepest part. He's walked towards the gates of death. And he says, Job, have you done that? Have you seen the, the gates of death? Have you seen the deep darkness? Do you comprehend all of that? All of these answers are no. Lord, he's Lord over light and darkness. Oh, I'm sorry, that's the next one. Light and darkness, right? That, that he knows where light dwells in the place of darkness. He has, he has all of these things in his control. He's Lord over the, the, the storms and brings the rains or the snow, right? He controls the hydro cycle. He waters the earth. And he is Lord over every creature. Remember the lions, the ravens, the mountain goats, the donkeys, the wild ox, the crazy ostrich, remember that, right? The war horse, all of that to remind Job, like, have you created all of this? Do you have that capacity? Are you that wildly imaginative that you could imagine these kind of things? I have done them all. And Job's response to all of that, when he hears about God and his absolute lordship, his grandeur in terms of his wisdom and creativity, Job says, shall the fall finder contend with the Almighty. He, he who argues with God, let him answer. And Job answered, oh, this is what the Lord said. And Job answered and said, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice. I'll proceed no further. He says, Lord, I'm going to shut up now because you're God and I'm not. And then the Lord adds one more. And remember, that was kind of that weird one where he's Lord over chaotic evil. He gives the example of the behemoth and how, Job, you can't take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare or the Leviathan. Lord, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook, press down his, his tongue with a cord? Can you bring him up with just a hook? Like, like whatever God means by that, Job gets fully. That it is about there are things that are so out of control from our perspective, right? From under the sun, there are things that we cannot solve. Tragedies that we cannot undo. Things that we go through. I wish, I wish I had not driven here today. I wish I would not done this. I wish I had not entered this. I wish, Lord, if I could just rewind time, I would change everything. I would wish that this would not take place. Calamity and evil have come to us that is so overwhelming that we are paralyzed to do anything about it. That's our perspective. That's real. But God's perspective, I just need a fish hook, right? I, I just need a stick, and I could take care of all of this. From God's perspective, the most chaotic evil, the thing that runs out of control and ruins our lives, nothing. That's why Job responds the way that he does. That's why he recognizes, right, that God can do all things. That's it. That God can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Remember, Job is repeating what God had already said. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful to, for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing my ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I just, I just want to say this, right? God's holy providence is not linear. It's not simplistic. It's not turn on, turn off. And it's not matchable or designable 
or anticipatable by us. He is matchless in his knowledge and his guidance over creation. He is mysterious in his will. crush and to destroy every monstrous, evil, chaotic thing. And only he is. And the best thing about it is God is for us. Satan is absolutely against us, but he is not God's rival. He is the behemoth and the leviathans. God has no rival. He is absolute in power. He knows exactly what he's doing, and he's on our side. See, that's the lesson in suffering. That yes, are you suffering? Yes. Will it go away? I don't know, because I'm not God. But I know that eventually it'll go away. Because no matter what happens, it can only happen so long as God decrees it will happen. And all things will come to an end. And we will eventually, if we have placed our faith in Christ, be with God for all eternity. And that truth is enhanced, not diminished, by the suffering we experience in this life. Because God is that good. And how do we know he's that good? He sent his son to die on the cross for our behalf.